For our COBT viewers, it's Maynard, Mike, and Todd here with something particularly timely, particularly interesting, and, and something we're super excited about. We're going to be talking to Rob Gramlich today. He's the founder and CEO of Grid Strategies, which is a consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. They recently wrote a report, and Rob, with your blessing, we will share it as part of this distribution, but it's about power demand and how it's growing and really how it's defying the expectations uh, of, of the last couple of decades where it didn't grow much. Now it looks like it's going to grow significantly. We'll get into all those issues, uh, why that's happening, and also some of the stresses uh, that's causing. Uh, before we jump in with Rob, Mike, let me ask you what's on your mind today as we talk uh, a little bit about power. Yeah, I'm just... And by the way, really nice vest. Yeah, exactly. It looks good on you as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, you know, for us, I mean, uh, we'll talk about a couple things, but, you know, just we're just trying to stay warm. And it's been really, really frigid here down in uh, Texas as well as across the rest of the U.S. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, a couple things. First of all, you know, markets today, a little, little ugly. You know, S&P's down about a half percent. You know, Dow's down maybe three quarters of a percent. And I just think it's a sell-off. The market's a little bit overbought. And so no real news. So the market's just kind of, you know, languishing today. I'd say from an economic standpoint, there's really no economic news uh, this week uh, to be thinking about. So markets are going to do what they're going to do. I think the interesting thing that, you know, comes across this week, and we talked about it uh, last week, is this Chevron deference case that is coming up in front of the Supreme Court in the next couple of days. And essentially what this uh, case you know, goes after is a Chevron defense deference case was was done decades ago, and it really allowed these sort of these alphabet letter agencies like the EPA to sort of make policy decisions on their own rather than judges making those uh, policy decisions because they were the experts at, at doing that. What this is going to do is, is, is go to try to overturn a Chevron deference case. And most people think that it's going to be overturned and it's got broad implications for the energy industry and other regulated industries because what it will essentially do is take the power away from those agencies and put it back in the judge's hands. And, and when that happens, there's just going to be everything's going to be slow walk. I mean, so it's going to happen. A lot of companies that have these big, big projects that need to go forward, they're just going to basically just, you know, stand still. So, you know, there's some good and bad news to this, but uh, it's a concern to us. It's something that you should be watching this week. As it relates to commodities this week, crude oil just is really staying in a really, a, a really, really tight pattern right now in the low 70s. Even with the Red Sea shipment, you know, shipping being affected, rates going up substantially for insurance, um, ships being rerouted, crude oil still can't get a bid. And the reason that is, is because S&D in Q1 of 2024 still looks like it's oversupplied. And so we have those two things working against each other. The other thing in commodity land, obviously, with it being really, really cold here in the last week is just, you know, um, natural gas uh, has been huge this week. Um, but today, gas is down about 30, 35 cents an M. It's essentially round-tripped uh, what it did over the last week or so. And the reason why is the weather pattern a week to two weeks out looks a little bit warmer, and so gas is coming crashing back down. Now, one interesting thing, and we talked about it last week as well, is that natural gas production really plunged this week. We were in the 103 BCF a day prior to this weather. It plunged as low as 92 to 93 Bs, almost 10 BCF a day. Uh, lower yesterday. It's up to around 96 or 97 Bs today. So still around five to six Bs lower week over week. And so that's going to obviously be affected. You know, you're going to see that in inventory numbers this week. And so that's that. Now, the last thing we'd really talk about just from an energy uh, company standpoint is Schlumberger or SLB company, whoever or whatever you want to call it, is going to be reporting on Friday. They're obviously going to set the tone for the uh, oil service uh, sector uh, beginning Friday. Most people expect that, you know, Schlumberger is going to be talking about really good growth internationally, really good growth offshore. That is no different. But I think what you're going to find out is they're going to be a little bit more somber on the first half 24 on North American pricing and activity. So expect that's going to come out the following week. You're going to see the rest of the big three, Halliburton and Baker, as well as Liberty reporting. So keep an eye out for those guys as well. And the last thing I'd really want to talk about, and Todd's going to talk a little bit more in detail about this, but just the electricity grid. I mean, it's been close. You know, we have to use a lot of conservation here over the last week to really avoid tripping the grid. And, and I don't think this is a, it's going to be something that's going to be unusual in years to come. The thing I would say it's interesting is we always talk about this in summer. It's happening now in winter. And so 
I look forward to talking to, to our guest today on uh, what his thoughts are there. So I'm going to turn it over to Todd. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And, and yeah, this is an incredibly timely episode, uh, given the winter weather outbreak that we've had. But, but a couple of quick anecdotes about that that I thought I would share with the viewers. You know, totally unrelated to cold weather. Last week, uh, the island of Oahu in Hawaii had rolling blackouts, uh, basically because the wind wasn't blowing and it was cloudy and rainy. And so solar wasn't discharging and they couldn't, um, they couldn't fill up the battery storage facility they recently brought online ironically, to replace a coal plant that they took offline about a year ago. And then with the cold weather, I, I thought the most amazing anecdote was from Alberta. As many of you know, uh, the Canadian power grid is tied into the United States power grid. Alberta will move power back and forth in Canada and then into Montana. But at, I think, 7.45 local time uh, last Saturday in Alberta, they got down to 10 megawatts of reserve capacity across the entire province, the load was about 12,000 megawatts. So you're talking about 0.1% uh, or less than 0.1% reserve margin uh, on a pretty big load uh, when, needless to say, when it's minus 30 degrees, loss of power could end up being pretty catastrophic. So, you know, I, we're not trying to use these, uh, these data points, you know, and extrapolate too much, but I do think it's indicative of the way things are changing. And then I think Rob is going to talk a lot about you're going to overlay changing power grid with a new step change in demand. And you could really have some interesting uh, times, to say the least, coming up uh, in the power grid in the future. So with that, Maynard, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Well, thanks, Todd. Thanks, Mike. Rob, again, welcome. It's great to have you. Um, the report is really interesting. It grabbed our attention. Um, maybe just uh, let's start there. Um, would, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, grid strategies, your group, I know your, your background, you're a longtime uh, power enthusiast. And so uh, hearing more about, about your team and what led you guys to produce the report in the first place would be a great place to start. Sure. Thanks, Maynard. And uh, Mike Todd, great to be with you all and with your, your listeners. Uh, yeah, we were interested in this. Um, my firm, Grid Strategies, a Washington, D.C. area-based uh, power sector consulting firm, uh, we focus mostly on kind of the bulk power markets and transmission uh, and transmission policy. You know, how are these markets going to work with decarbonization? We do a lot of, um, you know, sort of five to 10 year out research around what's needed to make all that work, keep reliability, keep re uh, rates uh, low for consumers. Um, and I started... Uh, hearing about this from my friends in the data center sector. So we have some clients who are, you know, large loads, um, you know, name, name brand technology companies that you all have heard of and they're building, you know, the, the folks I know are sort of assigned to go uh, get the energy needed for those, those data centers. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of growth in that area. They're all buying uh, clean power. Most of them have corporate goals for hundred percent carbon free, uh, and the less, and it's been really interesting because, you know, obviously they need power, not just at 2 p.m. when you can get almost free solar, but they need power all the times that they're operating. So they're getting a lot more sophisticated about the times and places and how do you get clean, firm power? How do you get firm power that's going to be there at all the times you need it? Um, but just very recently, like maybe four to six months ago, when uh, AI really started taking off, um, chat GPT and all these uh, things were becoming widespread. Those individuals who are out procuring energy, their eyes were bugging out at SEMA conferences and they were like, I have to do 10x the job that I thought I had to do three months ago. So uh, we started poking around and sure enough, once you look around, as you uh, see in the report, which you can find on our website, feel free to share it, Maynard. It's uh, on gridstrategiesllc.com. Uh, but we, we put a lot of the anecdotes in um, that once you look around, they're not hard to find about how all of these things, these recent factors are driving increased power demand. So sure enough, the data centers is a, is a big one and AI driven data center in particular is a, a big new one and a big, very uncertain one. Who knows how much we're going to be using AI for just about all of the million things you could use it for. Uh, so the predictability is, is an issue. Um, 
Uh, but also, you know, they, the Congress passed on a bipartisan basis the Chips Act. That's bringing chip manufacturing here. Turns out that's that's a pretty power hungry sector. Uh, electrification is a major priority for I don't know about thirty states, and and of course the Inflation Reduction Act has a lot of incentives for electrification of transportation and heating, and so that's all power demand. Um, and then hydrogen, which has not even been factored into any of the forecasts that we looked at, but hydrogen uh, electrolysis could be a big power-hungry user, user. So we collected all the anecdotes and reports we found, but also there is one national database that is filed with a regulator on power demand forecasts, and that's found in the FERC 714 form. And so my team has a lot of experience using that, that data, and uh, so we kind of put that together. And um, it's probably more of a, 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 a uh, you know, early indicator type of data set. Um, but we did see a significant nationwide uptick, like a doubling of the growth percent from the previous year. So we're, we're starting to see this in, you know, systematically, not just in anecdotes, but more systematically. And I don't know if, you know, we couldn't tell if this low growth gets us back into the era of the 80s and 90s of, you know, two or 3% growth or, or heck, the 60s and 70s with five or more percent growth a year. Uh, it's too early to say, or at least we, we couldn't, you know, find that yet. It's kind of all over the place. But we did see clear enough evidence that, as we said in the title of the report, the era of flat power demand is over. Like we had 20 years of basically no growth. Um, you know, maybe half a percent, uh, which was, you know, a lot of energy efficiency, no real new uses of electricity to speak of, compact fluorescence, and then LEDs, all flattening power demand. And so we had the whole industry gotten used to that basically flat uh, power demand. But now we, we're trying to get the industry to say, hey, wait a minute, we, we need to, you know, hire back the demand forecasters that we, you know, probably. Um, let go a while back and and get serious about this because we we probably need to build some infrastructure to serve this. And, and so, Rob, one question: So you, um, you you put out the report. The report, you know, as you say, it it points to this significant after a period of not growing or very small growth, significant ramp. Um, with with reason to believe it could ramp even more. Who knows? What's been the reaction? Who have you heard from? Like as you, you're kind enough to visit with us, but what's what's been the reaction to the report, and who, who's grabbing, who's latching onto it, and why? Sure. Well, it, it did get a fair amount of play in the trade press, the sort of electric industry press, and I think uh, I've heard a lot from policymakers, like uh, one of those alphabet soup agencies, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where I, I used to work. Um, as well as uh, in Congress, we're here in Washington. We have a lot of interaction. We sometimes we testify um, uh, and speak to a lot of uh, Hill staff in both both sides of the aisle, and and uh, they were all interested. Like um, you know, just sort of not any particular um, you know uh, action item, but um, certainly. Transmission policy comes up a lot. Then they need to build the large scale, long distance lines. And uh, sometimes, like everything else in our world, uh, that has become a little bit partisan in recent years, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think, you know, everybody cares about um, supporting economic development and growth. Um, and if we have power demand, you know, in part driven by some of these bipartisan bills, uh, some partisan, but some bipartisan bills, um, uh, you know, to do more manufacturing and other activities here in the U.S., like everybody can get behind that. So there there was a, a, a connection to supporting transmission investment that uh, that a lot of people are, are, um, are, you know, drawing that connection. And then one of the well, one of the things that's uh, striking about the report is so you do you do sort of the upfront sort of the the nation if you will, and then you do the the slices you do ERCOT and you do PJM you know you do all the various regions and kind of what the unique perspective is uh, regionally. 
any comments you made on the regions that stick out to you? Because they're not all the same. They're growing at different rates. And of course, they have different approaches to power sometimes. Yeah, well, unsurprisingly, uh, Texas has a lot of growth. And that's just uh, like, you know, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of people moving there. So a a lot of growth in Texas generally is now reflected in in power demand. and you know the the data center some of the manufacturing are are there um uh other regional uh areas where we're seeing some of this aligns with some of where the uh the data centers like to go um i think the uh, well first of all that that industry is changing in terms of their location but the last three or four years was mostly about uh connecting the the fiber to be physically proximate to uh, you know everybody else and their fiber because the the microseconds of of uh, delivery from a faraway place actually matter so places like Loudoun County Virginia out you know an hour west of DC um, is a hot spot around Phoenix is a hot spot for manufacturing and data centers uh, near Atlanta uh, so some of these areas have seen quite a bit of growth recently. Um, but now that's um, my understanding from that industry is they're all spreading out really because the number one thing is power anymore. Like that you can, you, you can, you can connect to fiber, but you can't get power. So uh, now they're kind of spreading out to wherever they can find power. It can, and maybe just, uh, you probably have this stat or I might mess it up, but I think the number you guys use is about two and a half percent of us power goes to data centers. And that number could, Go to seven and a half percent or so in the next decade, but I is that are those the right numbers, Rob? Um, yeah, that's in that range, and it, it could get quite a bit bigger because it, it is the fastest growing area, and uh, you know those you know those those companies are repeatedly saying that their uh, their their growth is uh, is going up. I'm looking at the PJM numbers. That's the Mid Atlantic to sort of Illinois area. Um, and their, uh, their low growth forecasts are, are, um, uh, are going up. It was in the, uh, 150 gigawatt range. And now they're looking up to 175 gigawatts in, in, uh, a decade and a half. Um, like it, it keeps, it keeps going up because of the electrification estimates and they're, they're following, they, they have that uh, Loudoun County area in their footprint. So they're following that closely. Rob, I think on this, uh, the power thing, and it was interesting to hear how people are, are reacting to your report. And as you said, everybody's thinking, oh, we got growth, we got to get ready, we've got to build, et cetera. But then there's this um, additional issue or discussion, which is around the power we have now. Um, it's increasingly, I think our perspective is, it's increasingly complex to operate it's it's got more and more flavors it's facing uh shutdowns of of some existing plants particularly coal plants so there was already i think and todd referenced this so your report highlights the growth the other big story that seems to be happening in power is we have made this such a byzantine uh with with funny decision making you know, we already had a mess before we had the growth, I think is what I'm trying to say. Is that your perspective? What would you add to that? How does this, how does that complicate all of this? Yeah, uh, sort of the readiness of the industry, even before we factored in this growth. Uh, I mean, I, I think there were significant challenges, particularly on transmission, because if you look at these severe weather incidents over the last decade, decade and a half, um, there the the regions that ended up doing okay were the ones that delivered a lot of uh, gigawatts across long distances to save the day because any any number of things can afflict different generation types. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of coal in different situations. We've lost a lot of gas in different situations. Renewables are are uh, you know not always there. You know, at certain times. Uh, and uh, even, you know, even nuclear uh, sometimes, uh, though rarer 
to lose it. But, you know, but what happens is the transmission system, particularly the big bulk transmission lines are usually there. So they're delivering power um, from a neighboring region when you have it. Now, winter storm Uri in Texas, of course, Texas famously is isolated from the rest of the system. There was plenty of available power in neighboring systems, but they chose not to uh, get it. I think they're still evaluating that uh, situation, being whether being isolated in today's world is a good idea. Um, and so we needed transmission before, and now we doubly or triply need it uh, now if you look at this power demand. Power is, is complicated, so I'll maybe kind of think of an analogy a little bit, if you will. Um, one observation is when you go short, it'd be really nice to go to the neighbors and borrow some, right? And that's the transmission solution. The other observation is it'd be really nice if you didn't have to go to the neighbor to begin with because you had your own, you had plenty in your own pantry. Uh, but it, it seems like uh, what we've done is, um, and Todd had some of these stats, is the, the percent of excess supply or the reserve margin or the just building your grid with the just-in-case mentality, we seem to have stopped doing that. Uh, is part of the problem we don't talk enough about reliability? Or, or what would you say about just thinking more harder about um, having excess supply just in case we need it? Is there, is there a different philosophy we need to take around some of this? Well, it, that's certainly getting a lot of attention right now. And resource adequacy is the, you know, the term of art in the electric industry for that, having sufficient supply available to meet um, long-term future demand. So it's a, it's a long-term planning concept. Uh, and it, it is important today, as you say. And it, 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 you know, it never wasn't. Um, I think there were some, um, Areas where people took their eye off the ball a little bit, um, you know, I, I think California got behind. They did have a couple instances of rolling blackouts, but they actually caught up. They put a ton of storage into their procurement uh, and it's been integrated and they're doing a lot better now. So they got solar and storage, which fit together extremely well. Uh, you know, the, the batteries can go into the evenings. Um, when the sun goes down and of course there's still cranking air conditioning on those hot summer, you know, heat spells that go into September. Um, so they're catching up, if not already caught up. Um, there was a, uh, well-known incident in the industry, NERC, the, you know, the continental reliability authority was highlighting the Midwest and MISO, uh, they got a little short, uh, consumers, um, and state regulators are very concerned. Suddenly the capacity prices went way up. Um, that's the market for, you know, long-term supply and demand um, indicating a shortfall. And NERC was raising a red flag saying we're going to be short on capacity. That was kind of interesting because the prices went up, consumers were concerned, but then that higher price attracted entry. Uh, and that's kind of what markets are supposed to do. Right. So, it's now I think it's sort of an open question. Like it is a real test of power markets. Of course, we started relying more and more on markets uh, 20, 25 years ago in this industry and, and they are being put to the test a little bit, but uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm starting to see some of the areas where the prices went up actually are serving to retain some generation and attract some new generation. And that's what you hope for in a market. Uh, now other areas are more of the traditional planning mode where you just, you know, some regulator and the utility uh, plan and they, they decree it. They don't rely on markets. Um, they certainly have the tools. So I don't think people are worried about not having the tools in that instance. Um, but, um, and the other aspect uh, of this, uh, Maynard is, um, EPA rules. People will bring up a lot, right? They're, um, talking about their section 211 of the clean air act act acting and what what impact that have will have uh, one interesting area of that is um thinking about generation as a backup reserve and so even if they don't those plants don't operate many hours of the year their capacity factors go down if they're still available for reliability then uh they, you know, then the reliability is is the same. Resource adequacy is there. Um, 
And my understanding is the EPA rules allow for that. Like you don't have to close the plant. You just have to uh, reduce the operation. Um, so anyway, all of those, those issues do need to be evaluated. I think both with environmental performance and resource adequacy uh, in, in mind, it's, it's certainly, certainly an important area and it's getting trickier and, and more complicated as, as uh, you know, all the things affecting the grid, um, you know, change. When you think about the Washington community and uh, and these power issues, and and there are the the agencies like like FERC, obviously there there are there are pockets of of energy influence, power influence, power knowledge. Who do you think of as the most influential in the Washington community right now on on power? Um, who, who's leading the way? trying to help people understand, trying to help people solve for a lot of issues. Do you, does, does someone or some entity stick out in Washington to you that's, that's leading the way? No, that's an interesting question. I mean, the, traditionally in the power sector, there have been sort of the utility associations from the investor-owned to municipal to co-op, and they, they remain influential. There's the industrial customer groups have always been influential, Elcon. Um, and they still are. Um, there's a lot more clean energy interests that are active um, now. Um, environmental groups, uh, organized labor, IBEW does a lot of work in particular in uh, transmission and some of these areas, a couple other labor unions. So, you know, politically on the Hill, those are sort of some of the interest groups uh, in terms of decision makers. I mean, FERC is really in charge have them has the most authority over this area and the way they work is it's sort of each commissioner is their own you know person and they vote they're not part of the administration um they've got three extremely thoughtful commissioners um there a couple open seats that i expect will be filled this year senate energy committee uh chaired by uh joe manchin is a you know a power of, of influence they even if they just hold a hearing they they have a lot of influence. Um, House Energy and Commerce is the other place. And then recently in the grid space, the uh, Department of Energy has this new grid deployment office that's doing a lot of really good things, in my opinion, to um, focus on deployment of infrastructure. There's so many challenges, as you can imagine, in permitting and financing some of these lines. And they have a much greater emphasis on deployment and breaking down some of those barriers than I, I've ever seen out of uh, the Department of Energy or any other administrative agency. So that'll be an interesting one to uh, to watch, um, you know, under Secretary uh, Granholm's leadership there. Rob, I appreciate your report. It's uh, really excellent. And uh, it really kind of shows a growth. And I don't think people, you know, average citizens or Washington, D.C. get how big it's going to be and how how expansive it's going to be. I guess my question for you is, is, is twofold. One, do people in D.C. realize, everyone in D.C. wants just electricity, 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 and, and I think they feel like you just kind of plug a, <laughs> a cord in the wall and it's going to be there all the time. It's, it's going to be a real, real challenge, and it hasn't grown in 20 years, for, and it's about to probably double and triple over the next 10, 15 years. Do they understand how tough it is to grow the grid, how tough it's going to be, to grow transmission, and a lot of it being because they're in the way of it. It's regulations, right? Uh, what, what's the mindset there? That's number one. And the second one would be, when you think about your report in the different NERC regions, where are the, where are the regions that are most at risk? Where do you see the most growth uh, uh, over the next, say, uh, you know, five or six years? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Taking the second question first, I, I do think kind of the South and Southwest, um, uh, Texas, I mentioned, Southwest, Arizona has a lot of demand growth, uh, and then some of the Southeastern states uh, as well, sort of continuing manufacturing trends that are longstanding. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, uh, you know, you throw some other states that are rapidly electrifying, they would they would have large growth and states like California, New York, and um, maybe some of the states that are more progressive on energy policy that really want to electrify, they would have growth. And then, um, 
I think with you, maybe Todd said a, a little bit ago about the um, the the timing, winter versus summer. You know, that'll be interesting too because if you think about electric heating in particular, uh, you're going to want to run a lot of heat. Uh, well, we all do in like winter mornings. Like you know, I'm in the east. I'm looking at five inches of snow in the Washington D.C. area. We, you know, I was cranking my furnace. Everybody else was too. Uh, across really much of the country this week, right? Well, if we electrify, that means a lot of heat pumps are cranking a lot of power in the winter mornings, probably not going to have a lot of solar power at that particular time, right? Um, and uh, and then if anybody, you know, to the extent people are, are using resistance heating, that, you know, that, that shoots it way up too. Um, so that's like, that's a time where, you know, we could start seeing our peaks really shift to that period of time it, it traditionally i mean my whole 30-year career in the energy industry we always think of peak for most regions being kind of the hot you know july afternoon uh with very little wind and just a lot of humidity people cranking air conditioning um but i think we're going to start seeing a lot more peaks around that winter winter morning situation which um i mean my my view on all this are are we are we equipped for it is sort of like the industry has dealt with a lot of bigger challenges than that over the years i mean heck we used to have 5 or 7% per year growth um in the in the 70s um but so then the the issue is just do are we planning for it and so part of what we were trying to accomplish by this and i appreciate your having this podcast and discussion this is helping hopefully as well as well as your listeners kind of spreading the the word is just you know the the industry needs to plan and get busy investing in whatever is needed to to meet the the demand if we plan well we can we can do it and if we and then to the extent we're relying on markets if we have the right market signals you know there's plenty of capital out there ready to invest we need to make sure the rules are right and barriers to entry are low. Uh, you can actually build infrastructure that's needed, uh, permitting timelines and accountability for permitting authorities. All those things are in place to enable infrastructure to be built. The private sector is up to it. There's no question. There's no question. There's plenty of available capital, but um, sort of like what you were saying, if you know, if we have the, the rules and the processes in place, um, you know, and, you know, either the planners or the markets are, are set up right. I think we can, we can do it. We just need to be, everybody needs to be aware of this is the way things are going. This is what power demand is. We need to, we need to meet it. The other thing it uh, really seems to be a disconnect as well is that electricity growth, assuming it's going to be really big, which I do think it's going to be really big. That means it's going to be a lot more pricing. It's going to be more expensive. You know, and one of the things you talked about is in the 70s, we were able to grow four or five or six percent. But, you know, I, I would say back then is you didn't have as many regulations in, in, in place as well. And so we're dealing with regulations, dealing with growth. It seems like pricing is going to be you know, going much higher. We're seeing that, you know, through most states. Uh, how is D.C. seeing that? How are states seeing that? And, and how is that affecting the consumers uh, at this point in time? How, how does that how does that basically when you look at your Ford S&D? How is that going to be basically uh, managed? Yeah, it's a um, it's an issue. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's sort of a you know in, in regulated industries, it's sort of a uh, you know that I guess the good side is there's more load to share the cost with, right? So if you can find efficient investments, um, then you're spreading the cost over a greater number of people. And so the existing users don't necessarily pay more. Um, but, you know, you're right. It's harder to find land where you can put a, a new power source. Uh, it's harder to uh, string together parcels of land for linear infrastructure like transmission. Uh, and all those things turn into cost, right? Uh, you know, you can sort of do it, um, yeah. but you have to, you know, you have to pay more for the, the the land and the rights of way and the permits and the permitting process and and all those things. Uh, so it is a it is a concern. Um, I mean, a little bit of balance comes from just the fact that some of the energy sources are very cheap. I mean, solar and storage costs have dropped dramatically in ten years. Wind has come down some, um, and uh, we're 
we'll see how long these high interest rates last. That certainly doesn't help with uh, cost of uh, power for consumers. Um, and then uh, another issue we have in the electric industry is a lot of the transmission assets and distribution are 50 to 70 years old. So even with nothing else happening, we would probably have to replace most of those assets, right? I mean, we saw and you know, everybody remembers the campfire and the other fires in Northern California um, when insufficient maintenance is done on transmission assets. So in, you know, with severe weather and other things, uh, we really have to make sure that those assets are, are resilient. And so, unfortunately, it's a bit of a double whammy. So we have to pay money to replace that. At the same time, we have to pay money to expand the capacity. So paying for two separate things at the same time. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, the the low cost and affordability of some of the new power sources can can balance some of those uh, upward, upward trends. Um, but it it's certainly a challenge and I, I know the you know the regulatory process at the federal level and the state level is very focused on that those cost dynamics the electric utilities to me over the next five six seven eight years look like growth companies to me i'll jump in and echo that i completely agree with you it wasn't long ago that people were talking about the utility death spiral and the end of the utility business model which i I just sort of scoffed at as some reporter trying to get a headline, but, uh, you know, no matter what, uh, we're going to need a lot of transmission and a lot of distribution and a lot of spending in those areas just to replace the old aspects of those grids. And there's no, there's no alternative to, you know, the integration of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of resources connected to the, to the grid. And the grid is right in the middle, uh, connecting it all, uh, I mean, the only real alternative is you, if you fully cut the cord and go off system. Uh, but if that ever reaches, you know, 1% of electricity usage, I'll be very surprised. Well, Rob, this is super interesting. You know, one of the things about the power market that's unique is that you've got different ISOs, you know, different RTOs with different market designs. As you think about sort of the juxtaposition of load growth with the changing generation mix. Do you feel like any of the regions of the country are sort of better suited than others to, you know, provide the resources we need? You know, you, you talk about market signals a couple different times, but as you compare and contrast California to ERCOT to PJM to MISO, do any of them give you more or less confidence about, about being able to solve this problem? Great question, Todd. Uh, I wish I had a simple answer where I could point to one of them that's just nailed it right. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about all of them. I think um, you know a no number of them have appropriately regionalized their their systems. SPP is pretty big, and MICE was pretty big, and much of the West is trying to integrate into a regional market that'll help. Uh, Texas is fairly big, but they could strengthen their connections to neighbors. Um, and then there's this difference in market design between those that have a capacity market and those that don't. Uh, it's been a longstanding debate in the electric industry. Um, I think in, uh, it, well, I'll just say my ideal approach is if we had the load serving entity responsible for load be better equipped to do long-term procurement. Um, and so that we get long-term contracts and different types of generators always, you know, can provide, you know, better rates if they have a long-term contract. I think we, uh, you know, there's, there is a lot of value and importance in the real-time spot market. And we had to work hard to get that right from an engineering and operational standpoint. But, um, you know, there aren't many industries that rely just on a hourly spot market, particularly when you're talking about 40, 50 year investments. So we need somebody on the load side. Let's say you're a generator coming in to you, you name the market. You, you would love to have a load serving entity that is looking out for their load on a 10 plus year basis saying, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll take, you know, X percent of your power under a long-term power purchase agreement. Um, and then you know as an investor, yeah, okay, I've got you know mostly hedged. I can maybe do a little bit uh, merchant. Uh, 
but and take a little keep a little bit of risk uh, and upside for my investment. But uh, I'd like to lock in long term investments. We don't really have effective load serving entities that do that type of uh, investment um, in in much of the country. So I could say more about each region. You know, New England, New York, PJM. ERCOT, Texas, California, SPP, they're all they're all a little bit different and have their pros and cons. But I would say one one thing that probably everybody could think about is how do we make sure we have load serving entities that are looking out long term, looking at these load forecasts longer term and making sure we have enough generation to serve that load. So Rob, is your point there just to make a, a to try to give it an example? If I uh, as the the load bearing entity in state X if I was able to say to the world, I will buy two thirds of all the power you can produce at this rate for the next 10 years, I will sign that contract today. And then the private sector could say, you know what, I'll build it and I'll take the risk on the power that's not spoken for you. That's that's the type of thing you're talking about. Exactly right. I've never met a independent power developer who you know, wouldn't be thrilled to have that conversation, right? They, they, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that counterparty on the other side of the table. So one thing, and I kind of echo some of what Mike was saying, uh, Rob, as we've gone through this, you're pointing to, and Mike, we kept talking about supply and demand. Your part, your, your report points to more demand. Um, the, the current way we're doing things before we get to your demand points to uh, supply, at least out of coal plants, being less. Um, it also, I, I think the other thing we think we're doing is we're building more solar, probably more wind. And it takes so long to build nuclear, that's unclear. And natural gas, uh, we just don't seem to be building a lot new of it. So when you look at the demand side of this equation, which you're highlighting, and then you kind of look at the supply side of the equation, it does point, you would think, to everybody getting really worried about cost because it just looks like demand's going up and supply's going down. Is that, I just want to emphasize that because when you just take a simple like freshman year economics look at this picture, you kind of go, ooh, boy, how can we not have costs go up? Is that, is that a fair way to think about this? Well, I mean, I think that's right. But, the, you know, I guess the other side of the supply equation is we have uh, 1.2 terawatts of generation in the interconnection queues. That's the line to get connected to the grid. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult process that FERC and the various grid planning entities are trying to fix to enable faster interconnection. Um, but, um, it, you know, if that remains constrained, then, then yes, we'll have a, you know, a, a basic, you know, demand exceeding supply price goes up scenario. Now, if all that supply, I mean, nobody expects all the 1.2 terawatts to, to come in. But, but if a lot of that supply can get in a lot quicker, um, you know, and we're, we're seeing some of the regions speed it up, um, you know, then it, it could balance it. Now it's, you know, a, 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 a megawatt is not a megawatt. So the other thing we have to keep in mind is in electricity, there's really different products like, you know, power at night is different, a different product from, power in the day when the sun is shining, right? Solar can sell one and not the other. Um, uh, storage is, you know, is, you know, it, uh, very interesting here to, you know, shift uh, from one product to another um, over time. But the, you know, the economic storage we have is four to six hours and not like multi-day long-term uh, storage. So everybody in the R and D space, I know the current Department of, of Energy would love to have more longer term, longer duration storage. But that um, you know that there's that product that's sort of the the firm as available resource is also important. And so uh, our capacity markets are the main way we have to deal with that. They're they're not perfect. There's dozens of ways I'd like to 
modify them. Um, but you know, they, they do provide that and, um, so hopefully they'll, you know, evolve, but you know, there will be some form of value in the market paid to those who can be available when the, when the system needs it. And that's the, you know, that's the, the interesting market design questions that get very detailed and complex, but are very important. Mike referenced it up front. There's this uh, discussion, Chevron deference at the Supreme Court. And so uh, let, let's just pause on that for a minute. If if um, if these types of decisions are, are some of the ones we're discussing, if they are pulled from the agencies and, and pushed back into Congress to say, you guys decide this more specifically from a policy standpoint, um, you, you were at the FERC, you have a lot of perspective on this. Uh, is, is, is power policy going to get better or worse uh, if we do that? Because uh, I understand why the Supreme Court will take a, a sort of a constitutional view of it. They're not making power policy. But I'm just curious what you think about something like that. If, if Congress was more directly involved in some of these decisions, where do you think that takes us? Well, maybe this is my bias as a former regulator at FERC, uh, having spent eight years there. Uh, I just know from the internal processes at FERC, and you know, I worked for a, you know, a, a Bush-appointed Republican. We had a, you know, the commission has Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the way we made decisions, well, my boss, the chairman, made decisions was he would listen to the economists, the engineers, the lawyers the, you know, you name it expert uh, across the 1200 person agency and balance all of that and then make a decision with his colleagues, the other commissioners. Uh, the idea of some judge who has probably spent less than 1% of their life thinking about energy, making a decision on policy or even Congress when, you know, probably less than 3% of their scope is energy. Uh, making all these detailed decisions uh, is a little little scary to me. Fair enough. You know, when you think about I, I apologize, Rob, I'm doing simplistic analogies for a minute, but uh, if the U.S. power grid was a basketball team, I feel like you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, the coal, the coal kid, we know exactly what he can do. We know exactly what he brings to the game. We know what his detriments are. Natural gas, same thing. Nuclear, same thing. We, we know well uh, those, those players on our team. It seems like where we get into the most problems as a policy for, in terms of policymaking is the lack of understanding about solar and wind and what they actually bring and, and when they are the cheapest and when they aren't the cheapest and why they're you know, when you insert them into the game, why you have to manage the game differently. It just seems like the debate, the lack of understanding around managing the growth of solar and wind and what those do to a grid, that's probably the biggest mystery piece in the power landscape today because a lot of times people are talking about them that do not have the technical background to, to be talking about them. But that that's just an observation. Is that... Is that how you feel about the situation? I think that's a very fair point. I love the basketball team metaphor because, as we were saying before, the electricity uh, in industry is really a bunch of different products. There's not like a single kilowatt hour. It's different times and places. There's inertia and other services that the system actually needs. So, um, you know, I don't know if there's five categories, but, you know, the five members of a basketball team is a about as good a metaphor as you could get. And so even if solar is the most valuable player with the biggest recent deployment, producing the most gigawatt hours, the most expected to be dominant in future years, and even if storage is the rookie of the year coming in out of nowhere, making a major impact, uh, and even if wind is, uh, you know, a steady, uh, you know, small forward or something, that's three players. You need five. So there are other resources that you need to make the whole system work. Well, and I'm sure somebody out there is saying that nuclear kid has never missed a practice and the <laughs> natural gas kid always rides with him. So those two 
if I don't have those two, I, I got nothing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the nuclear is great. I wish I wish they weren't the age of you know Bill Walton or Wilt Chamberlain. Like we need, like we need. To, hopefully, the SMRs work out. I you know I don't know. We we need we need some lower cost new nuclear coming in. A couple of weeks ago, we visited with um, uh, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, and you know one of the questions that seems to be on people's minds is if we were to have some political change in the fall, how the IRA. Uh, might get tweaked or otherwise changed or some of these things would would be different. Nuclear, when you said nuclear, it made me think of it. Um, whether it's a result of the election or not, do you see growing interest in just leaning in and building more nuclear? Because it, it is really the unique animal uh, that can do, you know, talk about something that is a unique value proposition, even if costly. What do you, what would you tell us about nuclear? Well, one thing I would say is that I, I think most uh, of the environmental community, not all, but most have come around to the idea that we, that nuclear provides um, uh, excellent value operating it all the time, all carbon free, you know, tons of carbon free megawatt hours. So, Preserving existing nuclear plants and supporting new nuclear, um, I think, is a, uh, you know, not universal, but I mean, the, the change in the sort of the Democratic Party influencers and environmental groups has been pretty dramatic over five years. So that certainly should affect the prospects of, of nuclear and policies to support it. Now, you know, at the same time, the costs are an issue for a new nuclear uh, and existing nuclear. So, um and, you know, and I don't know, maybe there's some silver bullet, you know, permitting regime changes that could speed this all up uh, or just modest incremental improvements each year from the NRC or whoever. Um, but, you know, the costs are the issue. I don't think it's the environmental community um, slowing it down. I think it's cost right now. Rob, we typically uh, ask our guests, uh, you know, what is the energy world look like in 10 years? But I'm going to change that up a little bit and say, okay, you just put a report out that basically said the the end of flat demand for the power bit, you know, p- power industry is over. Maybe we rewrote this report in the next two or three years. What's the title of that report? W- what have we gotten right? What have we gotten wrong? What have we underestimated, overestimated? What do you, what, are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think in a few years' time, we really could get plans in place to address demand. Uh, I I think. Uh, the transmission planning area is the main one. Uh, by the way, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, is about to, I think, about to issue significant new rules on transmission planning. That could help a lot. Congress probably has more, well, does, I think, have more work to do to support transmission policies. Uh, and then on the generation side, um, since that's often a state responsibility, I think states will be looking at that through their regulatory commissions and uh, and then the areas that rely on markets, I think will be, uh, I mean, I think the basic market design can attract the entry we need, but um, certainly we have evolving market designs to review. So in a few years time, I, I think and hope we'll make a lot of progress um, on generation through either planning and markets and on transmission through the uh, policies to, to um, remove barriers and move that forward. Hey, Rob, last question from me. One of the interesting things about your report and then our observations in general is how much uh, this has changed in the last year to 18 months. You know, the load forecast increases from the 2022 planning cycle and integrated resource planning exercises 2023 were a huge step change. Um, You know, as you have delved into these and you're thinking about it, have we adequately captured what we think is actually going to happen? I mean, what's the, you know, we're introducing volatility to something that hasn't been very volatile in the past, which is these long term low growth forecasts. How do you how do you see it evolving? Um, over yeah. the next year to 18 months? Well, that's a great question and a very timely one because I think it was just yesterday that Texas uh, missed their load forecast by nine gigawatts, um, like, you know, 10 to 15 percent. Uh, they were off. I think it's because of electric resistance heating is really hard to predict. But like, I think you're putting your finger on the the story even more than the, uh, well, the same 
amount of attention on the growth is on the uncertainty. Uh, and uh, which is why we're not really saying like, we have the answer. We know the new forecast. We're more saying, hey, it's it's no longer static. It's changing. It's going up, but we don't know how much it's going up. So that, uh, that forecast error and, and uncertainty is going to be a major challenge. Uh, it's probably a another problem that's solvable, but we got to put great minds and tools on, on that, on that forecasting um, in order to nail it down so we can plan appropriately. Well, Rob, as we, as we wrap up, I, I wonder if I could, I'm torn between two questions. Um, one is, I think when, when we look at the kind of the quote Western world, whether it's Germany or the UK or Australia or, some of the issues that are coming up in the US, we see these same patterns where you know, people have started to, to change the, the lineup of the basketball team. Uh, you know, they're starting to have some of the costs uh, and reliability issues, and, you, and you've added the growth thing. So my, my one question is, can we learn anything looking at other countries? And then, my second question, because you made a really interesting comment. You said you have a hard time believing that behind the fence power will be you know, 1% of the total. And the only reason why I think those are related, other than they're both burning a hole in my pocket to ask you, uh, is as, as you look at this as a corporate and you say, I need power and I need reliable, cheap power, your instinct is to put something behind the fence and, and not defend, not depend on the grid. And that seems to be happening in various places. But let me ask you to just wade into that as we wrap up. Sure. Well, I'll try to tie them together because, you know, globally, the economics and engineering are, are not very different. Certainly, if you're in Europe, you, you know, you're, the uh, energy security concerns are a lot more acute and uh, present uh, after the uh you know, Russia's invasion of, of uh, Ukraine. Um, but I think what we see there is, um, you know, doubling down on electrifying. So, you know, low growth there, need for infrastructure. They're actually building quite a lot of transmission, even in Europe. I mean, most casual observers of Europe wouldn't think they could build a lot of transmission. Uh, it's awfully hard to build anything, but they are actually building quite a lot of transmission. So that's really interesting. And then you look at China. Uh, I just actually tweeted yesterday uh, that uh, the state corporation, um, state grid corporation of China is uh, set to approve seven new ultra high voltage transmission lines this year and invest $70 billion a year over the next five years in transmission. Uh, and, you know, for somebody like me, I just get very jealous of their ability to do that. Now, we're not going to do things uh, similar to China at all with different processes and governance here in the U.S., but the amount of investment is something we should really look to try to get get towards that. Um, and so, um, you know, there are some similar changes around the world. I think we can look at, uh, look at some of them. Uh, and, and see if we can, you know, do some of that, you know, in our own way here in the U.S., but uh, do some of that significant investment. And on this behind the fence thing, do you feel that? Yeah. Um, so I, right. guess I, I will confess I, we, we feel that coming. We feel more and more people at least thinking about. Do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, the trend probably is in that direction. And I, I do hear even the data center case, sometimes um, they will do that. Um, and just, but it's so expensive relative to grid power that they, it's a really a last resort. And I, you know, I, I think it's just, it, it's, it's really a high cost outcome that I, I, I think very, very few people are going to want to do. Some people, you know, want to be off grid just for the sake of being off grid. And that's more of a cultural thing. But in terms of the rest of us who just want power, I think very few people, um, you know, probably more than in the past, you, you know, you can you can do more with uh, solar and an on-site battery uh, and, you know, maybe some uh, propane or diesel or something. But I, I think that'll be relatively rare. Well, uh, Rob Gramlich, we really appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to getting to know you and your team uh, better. Uh, you know, g going forward and really appreciate the report. It obviously struck a nerve with a lot of people and it was, uh, 
you pointed out something that needed to be pointed out. So, so, so thank you to you and your team for doing that. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. I've enjoyed awesome. it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody.